Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Purple Stars podcast. I'm Sarah, your host. And as promised, today we have Martina Pluda again on the podcast with our conversation part two. So many of you gave us awesome feedback about part one. And I can tell you, you are in for a real treat because we are diving into even more expertise of Martina's. And there are some very interesting topics that we are touching on today. Martina, thank you so much for having even more time for us today. Sure. Hi, Sarah, and hi to everyone who has tuned in for a second time. So, so many questions. So we're trying to squeeze in all of them today. We would love to talk about veganism. So me personally, I eat around 90% vegan. 10% for me is the rest. I've tried, as you know, all sorts of diets, like being completely vegan, being pescatarian, being vegetarian. And I've just found that these 90% um, vegan plant-based diet and 10% really works well for my body. So I would love to talk to you about veganism in general and what you would recommend for people who would like to introduce more plant-based foods into their diet. Sure. Okay. So I think I need, I owe this to all the vegans out there to make a distinction between veganism, veganism and plant-based diet, because there okay. is indeed a difference. So veganism is, is a lifestyle. It is, you know, kind of a moral compass that encompasses much more than just what you eat. So it's really about, you know, excluding and, and shifting away from animal cruelty in all its forms and trying to avoid it in all, you know, situations of life. So whether it is exactly about, you know, what you eat, but also about, you know, I know your skincare, your beauty routine, it's about what you wear, it's about, you know, the kind of entertainment that you make use of and so on and so forth. So plant-based eating is just one part of it. So mm -hmm. I owe this to the vegans because I know this is, you know, kind of an important distinction to make. So I think that if you're interested in veganism and or are looking for vegan resources or want to, you know, just make a first step with including more plant-based options in your diet, I think wherever you're starting from, just, you know, take it one step at a time. I think the most important thing is not to feel judged and just to know that, you know, every step, every approach, every, you know, ounce of curiosity is absolutely valid. So whether it's, you know, going vegan overnight or, you know, needing to, you know, first exclude meat, then fish, then cheese, and, you know, then just continue on that path, that's also totally okay. So there are so many resources out there. There are so many organizations, websites, books, documentaries available to help you learn more about the vegan lifestyle and or just the plant-based diet and its benefits. So I would definitely suggest checking out the Vegan Society, ProVeg, and Veganuary. They have you know, a lot of really helpful guides, recipes, tips, and tricks to navigate you know, plant-based food and more broadly, the vegan lifestyle. If I may name a few books and documentaries, I think these might be interesting to some listeners. There's a great, great book by Dr. Michael Greger. It's, the title is How Not to Die. So it dives into the health aspects of plant-based mm -hmm. eating. Then there is another great ethically focused book by Melanie Joy. It's called Why We Love Dogs, Eat Pigs and Wear Cows. And this kind of 
connects us a bit to what we were discussing in the previous episode about the distinction that we make, you know, between the animals we love and the ones that we eat and use. And then there's another great book about just in general, like making the case for, you know, veganism in the context of the environmental impact, the climate crisis, all the ethical aspects. And it's called This is Vegan Propaganda by Ed Winters. And he is just such a great communicator all around. So I definitely suggest checking out his social media channels. He has so many great videos that really will change your perspective. And I don't have any recommendations for cookbooks because there are just so many out there. And I mean, most of them are great. There's, you know, uh, you can have plant-based, you know, Mexican cuisine, Italian cuisine, uh, you know, plant-based and waste-free, you know, so how to recycle even, you know, uh, potato peels to make amazing recipes. So there's really a lot of great books and content creators as well on social media. So, you know, just just Google them. You'll, You'll find plenty. And then uh, in terms of documentaries, they're all available on Netflix, I believe. Certainly Forks Over Knives, What the Health, and then Cowspiracy mm-hmm. and Seaspiracy. I think these are all great you know, resources to get you started or at least to get you convinced to, to try, to give it a try. Thank you so much for sharing all these valuable resources. We're definitely going to include all the links in the show notes later so people can listen to it, can watch the documentaries, can read the books. And I I am a big believer when making change that step-by-step is the right way for most people and for not feeling deprived. And um, because I know so many people associate now if I'm touching the diet, oh, veganism, it's so boring. It doesn't taste good. But guys, you're so lucky. I remember, so Martina and I, we've been friends for a really long time. And I would say around... 12, 13 years ago, we gave it a shot to go vegetarian first. And it was so hard to find all the products and everything because it was still quite new in the German-speaking countries and also in Italy. And now you go to the supermarket, you get everything you want. And it's really about uh, taking some time, try different products, whether it's almond milk or coconut milk, oat milk, And uh, I even started making my own milk and it's really delicious. Yes, it's very, because especially in the US, if you look at the plant-based milks, they add so much sugar and all sorts of gums. And then it just came a point that I thought, okay, rather than always sticking to sort of one brand that actually does a healthy plant-based option, I'm trying also to make it myself. And Pinterest has so many, so many, so much great inspiration. And once I I really, truly believe once people taste how good vegan food can taste, they are just hooked. And it doesn't mean it needs to be full-time, you know, only having vegan. But there are so many benefits to it for the environment. It's so much better for the digestion. You can focus better. It's easier on your tummy. It's, It's just... So and also I sleep much better when I when I have a light vegan meal for dinner. And so we can definitely get very creative when it comes to the diet. And and I totally agree with what you say. It's a lifestyle. So it not just touches the diet. It also touches our mindset, how we consume things. 
the documentaries we watch, the books we read, it's an overall lifestyle that reflects our, is reflected in our choices. Also, Martina, I can imagine that the approach of that you need to have in order to educate people on that topic is it can be very tricky, especially when it comes to the topic which you mentioned earlier, the contrast between the animals we love and those we consume. Yes, absolutely. And and it, it is a tricky topic. And especially because for me, it's not just a diet. So it, it <laughs> is, you know, veganism is my moral compass. And therefore, you know, as per definition, I, I seek to exclude as far as possible and practicable all forms of animal exploitation. And therefore, as you said, since uh, options and alternatives are so readily available, then for me personally, there is no excuse to, you know, go for the meat-based or dairy-based option. But I do understand that, you know, not everybody has, you know, ever thought about it, you know, or has, you know, come maybe to this, you know, realization or has this level of awareness or is necessarily interested in even discussing the issue. So it is not easy. And I think, you know, these conversations are mostly about mutual empathy and about understanding that we have been educated within a certain belief, production and consumption system, which is based on speciesism. And we can go into what that is later if if you want. And and that kind of dismantling this kind of belief system is not an easy task. And telling people what they should or shouldn't do rarely works. You know, we can't impose our own beliefs on, on people, though that would be such an easy way, you know, to change the world. But I think instead it's crucial to really encourage individuals to think critically about their food choices and the ethical implications of those choices and really to prompt self-reflection. And, and there are actually many, many barriers to critical thinking when it comes to shifting away from the belief that certain animals deserve our love while others are here for us to use and eat. And there are like social barriers. So for example, you know, like, I don't want to stand out. I want to be like the rest of my social circle mm-hmm. because that is a safe space for me. There are also market-led and marketing-led barriers. You know, big ag and big food companies, they steer the narrative. They own the narrative around the food that we eat. You know, they they present us with images and stories about how the animals are raised. And rarely are these stories actually accurate and, and true. But mostly there are psychological barriers, which are nothing but coping mechanisms for us. And one of these is called cognitive dissonance. It is basically a psychological phenomenon where individuals experience discomfort when they hold conflicting beliefs, attitudes, values. And this discomfort often motivates people to seek consistency and This is by either changing their beliefs or rationalizing their behavior to reduce the conflict. So this basically means that while we may recognize that all animals are deserving of protection from harm and that factory farming or general farming and slaughtering practices are cruel and we would never want to partake in them ourselves, we would never want to slaughter an animal ourselves, we justify these animals' exploitation and killing as necessary for any given excuse. And I've heard so many like, you know, it's a food chain, but lions eat gazelles or, you know, we need to eat meat to be healthy and so on. 
And we do this because we simply love the way they taste. And, you know, we are kind of okay with paying somebody else to exploit and kill them on our behalf. You know, we, we kind of just close our eyes and, you know, tell ourselves that it's okay because somebody else will do it for us. So more concretely, we can talk about the meat paradox. This is what it's called. It is basically a conflict that many people experience when they simultaneously enjoy eating meat, but are aware of the ethical and environmental concerns associated with its production. So this often results in individuals wrestling with conflicting emotions and choices regarding their, their eating habits, their dietary habits. And uh, there is one more very interesting psychological mechanism by which, by which we basically increasingly fail to empathize with animals as the scale of the suffering in terms of numbers increases. So we can feel for one, few, for one or few individuals, but as the number grows, we grow more and more detached because the individual becomes a number and that number is just abstract to us. This is called a psychic numbing or, you know, compassion fade. So, you know, this, you might, you might be familiar with cases where, you know, a cow escapes mm -hmm. from a slaughterhouse or a pig jumps off a truck heading to the slaughterhouse. And we all root for that animal, right? We all want that animal to survive. And we all ask for that animal to be kind of pardoned. We want that animal to end up in a sanctuary, but we don't root for, you know, the hundreds of thousands of pigs and cows that are also slaughtered every day. So, mm -hmm. you know, like the, the vast scale that is connected with industrial animal agriculture makes it really challenging for individuals to fully understand or emotionally connect with the magnitude of animal suffering. So, so I think to go back to your question as to like how, how to work around this, how to, you know, educate people, have these conversations with people. I think it's really important to, to lead by example, to provide information, to offer alternatives. And as you said, now they are really readily available. Every supermarket has now like a vegan corner. Share personal experiences and stories and show understanding. I think, you know, like we, we have all started from a very similar, on a very similar path, right? I mean, very few people were raised vegetarians or vegans from, from when they were born. So I think it's just really also helpful to tell people, you know, I, I once was where you are now. Like I, I, I know I used to eat meat. I used to consume animal products. So I know, you know, how mm. it feels. And I, I shared this conflict that you may have right now. And, you know, but, but we can change that. It doesn't have to have to be that way. And, you know, you don't have to do this alone. And there's a community of, of people who share those same values as you. So, so as implied, I think in your question, it's essential to approach this topic with empathy and willingness to engage in dialogue rather than judgment. Although it's certainly very difficult not to judge. <laughs> I think we all judge. It's really part of human nature. And, you know, I, I also do my best, you know, not to judge. And I think in the last episode, you you know, you congratulated me for not having a judging uh, attitude <laughs> towards, you know, like clothing and secondhand. But, you know, let's be honest about that. It's when you're so passionate about something, when something mm -hmm. is so crucial to you, so central to you and you and not everybody sees that, you know, maybe people don't don't 
do not recognize it or blatantly decide to reject it. They just say, well, I don't care. I just love eating animals and wearing animals. And so what? You know, this mm. can be very frustrating as an advocate when, you know, something which is so obvious to you is so distant for others. So again, yes, trying not to judge and have these open conversations. But when you kind of have them every day, because you're so passionate about the topic and also because it's your job can be can be very tiring at times. You mentioned a lot of challenges that occur on a bigger scale. I also see a lot of challenging on a smaller scale, like in our smaller environment, as in like friends, family, neighbors, when we have a transition of diet, when I'm touching again upon the diet, If you're in California and London and Barcelona and places where it's very normal to be healthy and to have your green juice and to have your coconut latte rather than something else, it's probably much easier. But going to the countryside where it's kind of considered as normal to have meat every single day and or sometimes even twice. How did you deal with the judgment of people that are closer to you when you went through the transition many years ago? So I think for me at the beginning, I was very, I was very motivated. So I actually did not care that much about that judgment. I, I, I kind of feel it more now um, mm. because maybe at the beginning, you know, maybe not everybody took, took my decision seriously. Yes, I got some very weird and maybe inappropriate comments. But at the time, you know, this, I mean, I had to do this, this for me meant, you know, aligning my actions with my morals, it meant really, you know, leading by example, I, I worked for an animal protection organization. So, you know, I told myself, you, I, I cannot be a, a leader in, in this movement, I cannot be a leader for animals, if I am the first one to abuse them. So for me, this really was about, you know, being about integrity, about, yeah, about, exactly, about alignment. So at the beginning, I probably didn't care that much. Now, you know, I'm, I'm kind of 10 years into the movement, five years into veganism. And yeah, yeah I think you said we, we tried to go vegetarian like 12 years ago. So that's mm. probably when, yes, so 10 years into vegetarianism, five vegans. So now, you know, some, when I, when I see kind of like my closest friends and maybe some members of my family who's, do not want to maybe hear or be confronted with it. That's when it hurts a little bit. You know, I mm -hmm. feel like those are my, those are my failed battles. Those are my failed campaigns, but yeah, you cannot win all battles. And I've also had very meaningful conversations with people. I would have never thought would be, you know, open to having those conversations. And those are certainly incredibly rewarding. And so, so yeah, so the, the judgment is certainly there. I think it's a matter of your personal motivation and how, how, you know, how you're able to kind of just like stick to your course and not let, you know, others, yeah, like affect you from, from, from that. Mm -hmm. Yes. And then, as you said, just one, 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 one quick note on, you know, not finding options in the countryside. But yeah, it's certainly not possible to have this like fantastic, as you said, like coconut milk latte <laughs> or a fabulous poke bowl <laughs> with all your tofu and your edamame and whatnot. Mm -hmm. But let's just think about that, you know, all the kind of like what, what are like the vegan staples and vegan staples are, you know, like potatoes, legumes, pasta, mm -hmm. rice. I mean, I'm sure Anywhere you go, you're able to ask for, you know, a plate of pasta with tomato sauce or, you know, some potato salad or a nice risotto without, you know, the butter. So, I mean, 
again, it's not going to be like the most satisfying meal, but it's still going to be, an, you know, a nice and, and it can still be a well-balanced meal. So, yeah, <laughs> with a little compromise, it's still, it still gets your tummy full. Mm, that's so true. And it's interesting what you say about the battles, the ones that are lost w within your loved ones, that it hurts the most. Uh, maybe something that helps you. Maybe it's the definition of the battle and also yeah. winning. Because sometimes the win is not just when they're fully vegan. Sometimes the win is already in them having, instead of seven days a week meat, just six times. Or instead of having normal milk, they have coconut milk. You know, it's like sometimes those small changes are already big wins because that person will inspire the friend, the neighbor, the cousin. And it's just, and there are so many positive changes that you might not even see anymore. And in the end, it probably ends up as a really big win. Absolutely. No, you're, you're totally right. You know, I've, I've done a lot of street activism as well. And I've had, you know, conversations with, with strangers that have been much easier than conversations with family members. So mm. I think that there is also that emotional component, which affects that conversation much more than a conversation with a stranger, because you do not know the, that person, you do not know their context, you do not know their belief system. So in a way, it's much easier mm -hmm. to talk to them than, you know, knowing people around you and you know maybe you're also guided by things like oh but you know i know you would have the time the means you know to do this so why are you not doing it and then you end up being so much more frustrated at you know their resistance so so yeah and as you say sometimes you know already small changes and small steps are are big wins for for certain people martina as we could hear or as we could have heard we're throughout all too episodes now you are very passionate about animals could you share more about your journey to becoming a professional animal advocate sure so let me start off by saying that i don't think that there is a standard journey so for anybody listening this is like my personal journey and which doesn't mean that this is the journey of all advocates um i think you know we we do need uh, professionals in the movement we do need the movement to be you know, professionalized. But I think, you know, being an animal advocate, a campaigner is more of a mindset. It's more, you know, wanting to passionately pick up battles and basically become, you know, a pain in the bum for your target, you know, for somebody else. And so, <laughs> yeah, there, there isn't like a school <laughs> for becoming an advocate. So, so having said that, my personal journey. So I have studied law. And we have started the journey together, actually. And during the end of my law course, I started to become interested in environmental topics. And I decided to dive into environmental law. And that's where I kind of started asking myself the first questions about, about animals. I remember in these courses, we mostly talked about species conservation. So, you know, trying to protect an animal group for the sake of, you know, biodiversity, ecology, but we were never speaking about the individual for, you know, for their, protecting them for their inherent worth. 
So I started doing my own research and discovered that there is an area of the law called animal law that focuses on this aspect, which is not very developed. There's very few, you know, academics and thinkers and contributors to this discipline. But I really wanted to be a part of it. I really wanted to develop this and thought that, you know, this could be the way to go. But I had really no idea as to how I could, you know, gain some knowledge and 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 education about it. And the funny thing is that you and I, we went on an exchange together. We went to uh, Barcelona for one semester during our law degree. You will remember for sure. And the first day in Barcelona, I went to meet my my tutor at the hosting university. And on her office door, there was a poster about a, ma- a master's in animal law. And I mean, what an incredible coincidence. And And you actually pushed me to do this semester exchange. So had you not pushed me to come with you to Barcelona, then I probably would have never found out about this master which of course I ended up doing. And this was such an amazing experience. I met so many incredible people. And, you know, I mean, these are the people that make up the animal protection movement. It's such a small, small group of people. And you end up knowing everyone very quickly. And this really opened my eyes, my mind, and really motivated me to work in this field. So I was absolutely determined to work for an animal protection charity for an NGO I did my first internship with actually with Humane Society International, that is now my employer and the organization I work for. And I loved it. I absolutely loved it. It was just an internship. And right after that internship, I was able to to get my first uh, actual job as an animal advocate. I I applied with Four Paws. It is an international animal protection organization, born and raised and based in Austria, in Vienna. They are an amazing group with an amazing history, an amazing story, such a success story. And I've worked with them for four years. I was heading their campaigns in Austria. And then I was able, I really had the ambition to grow. I wanted to take on more responsibility. Then why not go back home, go back to Italy? And HSI was looking to expand its activities in certain European countries, amongst them also Italy. and. There you have it. That's how I ended up where I am right now. I think, you know, it was a lot of dedication on my part. And then it was really about being perhaps the right person at the right time. And and again, I think really showing what an advocate is. And mm. I like to tell this story, not, not to promote, you know, myself, but it's, I remember when I applied for this first position at Four Paws, they were looking for somebody with campaigning experience and who had led a team before. And I had not I had had working experience before I was working in another field in like media and communications, always from a legal perspective, but I had certainly not led a team and I, but I just really wanted this job so badly. And I remember I got a rejection from the hiring agency and I thought, ah, oh, this cannot be, you know, like I still have a very interesting background. I have this master's, I have done a lot of, you know, other like projects in, on animal law during university and on my own. So I'm just going to send my application again, but this time I'm going to do it old school. So I put everything in an envelope, you know, like stamp and sent it by post. And then I remember getting a call from what became then my, my boss and she called me for an interview. And then a few days later, she told me I got the job and I was just so kind of like shocked, like why I got a rejection first and then in 
like a week time I, I was hired. So I asked her like, why, what, 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 what made you change your mind or what made you decide I was the right person? She said, well, you know, like you had the determination, this is what we need. Mm -hmm. You know, we need somebody who will not stop, you know, at the first door that is closed in front of them. You know, this is what being a campaigner, being an advocate is. It's about insisting, you know, and fighting and fighting and fighting. And so that to me kind of, you know, yeah, I guess it kind of gave me the, it confirmed to me that, you know, I was on the right track and that I, I was a campaigner and a, an advocate. And am, and still am, of course. <laughs> so many things I love about your story. First of all, because I got to experience all of that throughout the years as a friend and I just the growth and I, all these conversations when you got rejected and when you sent the letter, like I, I just, I had flashbacks. But I think your success story is not just an inspiration for people who want to be an animal advocate. It's for anyone who wants to be successful. Because I am, as especially as a coach, I am a, such a big believer that talent is just a small part of our success. It really comes down to dedication, to keep going, to not accepting a no. To And my dad always said, every no gets us closer to a yes if we keep going and don't stop. And that really what shows yeah. your story. You did not anyone... You didn't let anyone stop you because you had your goal in mind. You have your moral compass, which I think is very important along the way. And you, you were on a mission and you did whatever it took. And you had the guts to send again a letter and be like, hey, I am the right person for you. Like, even if you could maybe for whatever reason, could it, couldn't see it the first time. And so I think it's, it's, it's such, such a great reminder and also encourages people if they have a goal, life will find its way to make it happen, to open the door for you, even if it's in a complete different way than we expected initially. And I love what you said about your master's degree. And you said, oh, what a coincidence that this poster was on her door. I truly believe there are no coincidences. I really believe these are the rewards we get in life for following our heart's calling. And whenever we follow our heart, there are things aligning. And it might feel like a lucky coincidence, but it is actually a reward that we get for, you know, stepping outside the comfort zone. In that case, it was you saving up your money, having a semester abroad, being again in a new country. And both of us, our Spanish was not that great back then, <laughs> initially at least. True. So it, it, it is, I, I, I love your story and it's just uh, such a small part from everything you have achieved. It's just, yeah, it's incredible. It's very inspiring and empowering and I'm sure our listeners feel the same. And uh, when I come back to our listeners, I know a lot of them wanted me to address the topic rescue dogs. You know, and I'm sure it's sure. part of your job because I know in the past you were dealing a lot with illegal puppy trading. And I would love to touch that topic and talk about, on the one hand, the legal part, but also what are the advantages of adopting a dog rather than purchasing one from a breeder, especially for families who are considering getting a furry companion for themselves? Okay, how much time do we have for this? <laughs> I mean, forever. <laughs> okay, there's just so many, so many points. And Sarah knows I have, 
I have made notes because there's just so many key elements to this question, to this conversation. So I, I really want to touch upon each um, of them. And so be ready for <laughs> a few minutes of, of diving into this topic. But I think it's just such an interesting one and, 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 and mostly also over, overlooked, you know, when, when we want uh, a companion, just like any purchase, like, just like any other purchase, we don't always scratch beyond the surface. We often see, you know, pets as a gift for kids, a gift for Christmas, but there is also a massive industry and business behind this as well. So it's really worth going into a little depth here. So adopting a dog from a shelter rather than purchasing one from a breeder has certainly several advantages and they are both for the animal as well as for the his or her adopters. So I think the number one positive impact is that it saves a life. So when you adopt a dog from a shelter, you are giving a homeless animal a chance at a better life and you also make space for another abandoned dog to be placed in the care of a shelter. Um, and, you know, at the same time, you are helping um, reduce the number of animals in overcrowded shelters. You, you will not believe the amount of animals that are abandoned each year. Um, and, and in some cases also from people who have gifted these animals, you know, and have underestimated the responsibility that, that it is and mm. the work that it entails. So I... I really like to make people aware that every time they buy a dog from a breeder, they take away the chance for a homeless dog to find a new family. Then, so first time owners, they tend to focus a lot on specific breeds, often purely based on their aesthetics. So they might like the ears to be a certain way. They might want the fur to be, I don't know, long or short or curly and so on. But you know, animals are not accessories and we cannot just configurate them and choose them according to our liking. We know that they are individuals, they are sentient beings, they have their own personality, character and preferences. And certain breeds are more active than others. They need to be engaged. And size, for example, is not an indicator of how much exercise a dog needs. So I, I see a lot of yeah. a lot of families, you know, get, getting these small dogs. Uh, because they live in small apartments and think that a small dog is more manageable. But, you know, sometimes these small dogs, such as terriers, you know, are really active. They really need to be out a lot, run, dig, you know, uh, hunt. And I mean, of course, you know, like using, engaging their nose to look for things and objects and smells. So, so yeah, so that definitely this is something which is often underestimated. And so for this reason, I think such aspects need also to be taken into consideration when deciding to add a furry member to the family, because one's own lifestyle may or may not be in line with the needs of those specific breeds. And shelters not only have, you know, wide variety of dog breeds, but they also have, you know, mixed breed dogs. So you can find really one that suits your preferences and lifestyle. They also assess the behavior and temperament of their dogs. So they will help you. They will help match you with a dog that fits your family's needs and lifestyle. They will know which dogs, you know, are quieter and like to, you know, just cuddle and sleep. Those who really, you know, enjoy the time outside and need to dig, 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 dig. So, you know, it shouldn't be a decision based solely on aesthetics but it should really be about, you know, the dog's character, the dog's personality, the dog's needs, and whether these match with your lifestyle. And often when you go to a breeder, this is simply not possible. You choose the puppy you like, 
but not this puppy might not necessarily be you know compatible with you and your family so also i just want to say that it doesn't have to be a puppy mm-hmm. i really encourage people to consider adopting also older dogs and senior dogs they are so so sweet and they deserve a loving home too and they often bear the benefit of being already socialized and trained so they already know where they have to go potty mm-hmm. and you know all the puppy oh, yes. stress and <laughs> trauma can be avoided with older dogs <laughs> then i think going back to wanting a dog for uh, their aesthetics i do want to mention that many mainstream dog breeds are connected to a series of genetic health problems these Breeds mm-hmm. are the result of selective breeding with the objective to enhance certain physical traits which are considered desirable by us. They are considered desirable because we like them that way, but they deviate from the norm to such an extent that they ultimately lead to health problems and suffering for the animals. And, you know, later having to correct and address this, these issues with a vet can be very costly. This can lead to really invasive operations that are, you know, painful, distressing for the animals and, you know, which can be painful and distressing also for our wallets. And I think the perfect examples of these dogs, they're called dogs bred for deformity. They are the brachycephalic breeds such as, you know, bulldogs and pugs. They have these very short skulls and flat faces. They're very recognizable and they often struggle to breed, especially when there is, you know, hot weather. Mm-hmm. I'm sure many of you have heard the noise that they make all the time is simply because they suffer from various respiratory issues. But there's many examples. I mean, many, many of uh, these like commercial dog breeds have such problems. You know, just think about sausage dogs. They often have back problems. German Shepherds and also Labradors can suffer from hip dysplasia. Chihuahuas and Cavalier King Charles Spaniels, they often have neurological disorders due to the skull being so small and it's compressing their brain. So Unfortunately, these, these, these breeds can, can bear these problems. Not all individuals within these breeds will necessarily suffer from deformities or health problems, but the risk is certainly higher due to these practices that emphasize extreme physical characteristics that are profit-oriented because people want them that way instead of putting animal welfare first. That I think, again, people are not necessarily aware that the dog they like and that the reason they like it that way is uh, what is causing the animal to suffer. So I always say that a cute mutt from a shelter is perhaps a safer and more humane choice. Uh, And it's certainly a unique choice. Mm. (laughs) There is no mutt like another mutt. They are all unique. Mentioned puppy trade before. Yes, it's uh, definitely an issue I've worked on and it is connected also to, to, you know, breeding by getting a dog from a breeder versus from a shelter. So I'd be happy to touch upon that if you'd like. Absolutely. And we definitely have a few more minutes too, because I I wanted to dive into that a little bit more because I think it helps people also to be more responsible when it comes to their choice of getting a new dog. I, I must admit our dog right now, Henry, he's nine years old. We got him from a breeder 
But back then we were also not yet that informed about the entire pro like process of adopting and everything. And nowadays it's way more common and there are way more opportunities to do so. So my family and me, we definitely decided whenever we are going to have a new dog, it will be, it will be a rescue dog. And I've also fostered dogs and it's, it's such a beautiful experience and it's, it's not just adding a family member, but it's it's giving back. It's it's giving back so much because dogs and cats or whoever we're going to adopt are just adding so much value and gifts to our life. So rescuing and adopting definitely is is a great choice. And if you could give more insights behind the scenes when it comes to illegal puppy training, I think that would help people very much. Yeah, sure. Sure. And I mean, and thank you for being so open about, you know, saying that you, you bought your dog because yeah. I mean, it, it is such a happy moment for a family, right? We are just so focused on, on welcoming this new family member. And we of course want it to be cute and we want it to be such a special moment. And so, you know, when there is this excitement at play, we tend to overlook on certain things, you know? Mm -hmm. and, and so, as you say, I think many people just are not aware what, you know, buying a dog means for all the dogs who are at shelters waiting for a new family but yeah so going back to the to the issue of illegal puppy trade so certainly one additional advantage of getting a dog from a shelter is that you avoid financing the illegal and cruel puppy trade i think you know we've been speaking about breeders but breeder is such a general term and dogs are born in many different man-made circumstances. They, they, there are like registered com commercial breeders who adhere to whatever the legislation is saying. There are puppy mills, which are basically puppy factories. There are living room breeders. There are accidental litters between animals who were not neutered and so on and so on. So the danger of buying an animal from unknown and dubious sources is certainly really high, especially nowadays with the internet. People will sell dogs online, like breed dogs, and I'm, you know, putting quotation marks because they are uh, advertised as, you know, bulldog, chihuahua, or labradors, and they are sold online for little money compared to what a registered breeder might ask. And although this may seem like, you know, you're striking a deal, you have no way of knowing how the parent animals were kept, how these puppies were bred, you know, if they received veterinary care, if the paperwork that they often, you know, will parade, if this is really legit or not. And so, you know, hidden costs and also other issues are often really around the corner. The animals may be too young. They have been, you know, separated from their mother too soon. They may be sick they may carry genetic problems i've seen so many puppies you know taken away from from their mothers too early to be sold online which that had parvovirus so this is really way too common and this may end up again being very costly and um, you may end up you know unknowingly financing illegal practices and animal cruelty and yeah let me say that this this and what we've said before applies also to cats. So there are, of course, many cats in shelters. There are many cats who are bred for extreme physical traits who suffer greatly. Uh, and there's cats who are also being, you know, illegally bred and traded. So I think just kind of last but not least, I think adopting from a shelter 
you know, means supporting animal welfare organizations and their efforts to care for and rehome homeless and to raise awareness on responsible pet ownership. And I think in conclusion, adopting is a really a compassionate choice that can provide a loving home to a deserving animal. And, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful thing to do. And I think that the, their gratitude is something really, really magical. I have a rescue dog and, and you can tell that she is just so grateful about this second chance at a great life. So it's, it's however, essential to be prepared for some unique challenges because obviously other mm. dogs may have also an unknown past and you need to be patient you need to, you know, help them, you know, enter the new environment, enter the new family. But these are all challenges that can be overcome. And a lot of uh, organizations and shelters do provide support, do provide guidance and the potential rewards of offering a second chance to a homeless pet are just massive. They are, they, they make it all good. They make it all good. Martina, I would love to close our conversation with three questions about your rescue dog. Her name is Yogi. And the first question is, if you could ask her a question, what would it be? I think I would want to know what is her favorite food. <laughs> love it. Because she likes everything. She she eats everything, but literally everything. But I would really love to know what is the one thing that really gratifies her the most. <laughs> okay, so second question. If Yogi had a profile on Tinder, what would be three things she would tell about herself? So she would say, I'm shy, but once I open up, I am all yours. Second thing is I love the mountains. <laughs> And third thing, my nickname is Yogi Roo because I love to jump. Oh my God. She would have so many people <laughs> swiping in the right direction. <laughs> and what do you think Yogi is better at than you are? Well, I, I think, you know, dogs have this amazing, amazing capacity to empathize. So I think definitely as much as I am in a very, you know, I have a lot of empathy and compassion. Otherwise, I think I would not do what I do. But I, I mean, but the dogs, their, their level, her level of compassion is really beyond anything I've ever seen. And just her ability to understand my, you know, my feelings, the way I, you know, I am in that moment, if I'm happy, if I'm sad, if I need to be left alone, if I need her companionship. I mean, we, I think we said this in the first episode, this is all without words. This is just, mm -hmm. you know, energy and, you know, unspoken communication that she and dogs in general are just so great at. And yeah, we are not. <laughs> It's so true. Dogs are They're so good at so many things. I always say they have they have it figured out. They really have it figured out. And that's one of the reasons why this podcast exists to really highlight what they can share with us and also what we can learn from them. So Absolutely. the last question is, could you please share one or two sentences about your thoughts when it comes to the Purple Stars podcast? Wow. Well, I think... I think you have created something incredible, as you always have, though, I must say, I have followed all of your projects, all of your past projects and, and, and anything you do. And I know I've said it also in the first episode, and this is not just like me, you know, throwing flowers at you, I promise. Everything you've ever started has always been with so much passion and so much attention to detail. And so, you know, I think 
this will be another of your successful projects. And I, I certainly am rooting for you and for it to be as successful as I think it will be. And oh my goodness, when you sent me, you know, the, the trailer, the video presenting it, I, I was so, you know, impressed and so grateful that you wanted me to be a part of it. So yeah, guys, tune in. What should I say more? Martina, thank you so much for your kind words, for your time, and thank you for sharing all your expertise and insight. Wow, those two episodes, I think everyone will be so grateful because you not just gave us a really valuable insight in the animal rights area, you gave us inspiration to how to be successful, how to follow through with our moral principles, how to follow our own heart, our own mission. You gave us great advice when it comes to adding a new fairy companion to our family and so much more. So I can't thank you enough for your time. And um, I'm sure we'll do a part three at some point when you have time again. I'd love to. And again, thank you just so, so much for having me. This has been a pleasure. And um, anyone who has been listening, thank you for, you know, coming all the way to the end of the second episode. I really appreciate your time. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. It's a wrap for today. We really hope you loved those two parts with Martina Pluter. And if you did, please share it with your family and friends. Don't forget to tag us on social media to keep the conversation going. And we're excited to have you back next Wednesday.